Hello there, I'm Clara Ampho and welcome back to This City, a podcast dedicated to the stories, the places and the people of our wonderful capital city, London. Now, each episode, I'll be talking to some of the city's most recognisable names, whether they were born here or have made it their second home to hear their very own love letter to London. This week, my guest is somebody who I've got a lot of time for and actually somebody who I'm a bit nervous about interviewing because, look, she's really clever. She knows things. I mean, I know some things, but I suspect she knows a little bit more. Uh, She became the first black British woman to be number one in the British book charts for her book, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. She's written for The Guardian, The Independent, The Telegraph and The New York Times, to name but a few. And she grew up in East and North London. Today, I'm talking to writer, journalist and podcaster, Renietta Lodge. Renietta Lodge. Hello, Clara. Hi. <laughs> Welcome to my podcast. Thanks for, uh, thanks for doing it. Thanks for having me. I always wonder if I should ask friends or friends I'm developing friendships with further if they should do my podcast because you're just like, well, you know, we chat casually. It's very flattering <laughs> to say that you're developing a friendship. We've engaged in internet banter with each other for a good few years now, haven't we? We had a Wagamama together once in the South Bank. We did indeed. We did indeed. Yeah, that was a funny time for me. Yeah, I'm not going to go into long detail. That's for therapy. But uh, it was a funny time for me adjusting to, you know, my newfound recognition. And uh, I had a good restoring conversation with you. So I appreciated that. Like, you know, I remember that moment very well. Yeah, because we were at the, yeah, we're at the Wagamamas on the South Bank. And I think as we were about to tuck into our respective katsus and yakisobas, <laughs> I think someone, I think, interrupts the conversation like, Rennie, you know, mm. just want to say. And, <laughs> and I remember observing that moment thinking, oh, fuck. Like, no, in, in a, and I say this, and I say this with absolute love and respect, thinking she didn't do this for this. Mm. She just wrote a book, exploring some thoughts. People took to the book, you know, in a way that you didn't expect. And, and with that comes, you know, being recognised. And I know that you're not an ungrateful person, but I remember that moment thinking like, I, I remember thinking, fuck, this isn't what she signed up for, but this is now a part yeah. of her life. And I think when I say that was a funny time for me, now that I'm in a much better, like, centred place and things have kind of like settled down for me and I'm like adjusted. I look back to that time and I'm like, I need to go on a tour of everybody I interacted with and it was like, and be like, oh, I'm sorry. I just, it was very strange for me and I was adjusting and I was very like, just very anxious in a way that probably didn't make me the nicest person to hang out with, you know? So I feel like going on an apology tour. And I'm not saying I was a tyrant. I just was so overwhelmed with everything that was happening to me and like changing in my life that like I just wasn't myself you know this is getting very deep and I don't know if that's what you picked up no, doing look, I'm, 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 <laughs> I am I look, I'm so 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 I'm so here for the deepness because I'm just trying to remember exactly what period of time that was so we're talking from what 2018 or a little bit more yeah 2018 there was this time in 2018 where like Anywhere I went, somebody would recognise me to the point where I was like, I need to start wearing a wig. Like, I can't, <laughs> I can't take this. But well, we yeah, should I mean, talk about London because 
you know, it's all part and parcel for me. Well, this is it. We're talking about your relationship with London. We're talking about your interactions with people in the city. And I want to, you know, go back to start like I do with everybody. Your beginnings. Where, where were you born? I was actually born in Whitechapel in a hospital that now is disused. But I think I'm told that um, the filming of the TV show Whitechapel is in the hospital where I was born. I think it was called the Royal London. I'm not sure. Like my early years were in Canary Wharf, like in a flat in Canary Wharf. But then my parents went their separate ways. Me and my mum, who was a single mum, we ended up in um, an area of South London, like proper, proper outskirts called Abbey Wood. Um, and then when I was about seven, just before my seventh birthday, I moved to Tottenham, right. um, which is where I was until I went to uni. So and now I'm in an undisclosed area of East London. <laughs> <laughs> so your kind of your base years were, were in Tottenham. Yeah, pretty much. I studied away from home. I was in uni in the northwest of England for like four years. But when that wrapped up, for me, there was no other place to go to but London. And, you know, there was some discussion because when I was at uni, I was elected to be student union president. So I stayed there for a year, worked full time. That's how I ended up being there for four years. And some people were like, oh, you're going to run again, you know, or you could probably get a job at the university. And I was like, I really do need to be back in London. You know, for me that this is the city where things happen. And I'm not saying that opportunity doesn't exist outside of London, but for me, it was just important to be back in London. For sure. Um, well, look, so much to discuss, Renny. Um, you mentioned growing up with your mum in Tottenham. So was it just you and her? Do you, or do you come from a big family? No, it was a pretty small family. Um, hmm. We moved to Tottenham because she entered a new relationship. So we moved in with the person who's now my stepdad. And, uh, you know, I basically consider him my dad at this point. And she had a couple more kids with him. And, you know, I would say it was a, it was a small family, you know. I do have family in and around London. Um, but for me, it was all about just like this small, like nuclear family. And I, I guess I would say I spent my formative years in and around Tottenham. And I went to school in Enfield. So basically very much North London. What kind of student were you? Because dare I say, I could imagine you being voted most likely to write a book or were you, were you, were you the opposite of the professional woman that we know today? I think people in secondary school in particular used to say that I would be likely to be a comedian, basically. Like, I cracked a lot of jokes. I was very extroverted in school. I loved drama. That was probably one of my favourite uh, subjects. Yeah, I just loved like being the class clown basically and I've always loved reading and writing like you know one thing that my mom will say that she loves to boast about is the fact that I was reading at age four but I always loved reading and writing but I did fall out of love with it a bit in secondary school I found my experience in school like I guess I, f I felt underestimated mm. I, I just saw the like the smile just like wipe off your face there I, I feel like you weren't expecting me to say that like I found myself basically in the bottom set for a few things. And I felt like, I don't know, it just felt like I'd been sort of like tossed on a scrap creep or something. Do you know what I mean? Like I knew I was clever. And sometimes I found myself in these streams where I'd, it just wasn't, it wasn't challenging. And then sometimes I'd find myself in a stream where I just didn't get the grasp of like the basics. And so right. rather than just like put my hand up and say, oh, sir, I'm really not grasping this. I would just act up, you know, and get sent out. So now that like I've got all of this success for being an intellectual person, I'm, I'm sure my old teachers are shocked. I was in the top set for English like consistently throughout secondary school, but 
I never did homework, you know. And I do remember you know that like I was going to get an E at one point by my English teacher. Um, For me, it was rocky. Like I always felt like I had the ability to do stuff, but sometimes I didn't want to do things, you know. This this is genuinely a revelation because I, I followed your writing for some years. Of course, you know, I've read the book. I've bought copies of the book for, for, for several people. I would never imagine that you would be a, a, a raucous school child. Oh, God. <laughs> what high school did you go to, by the way? I went to St. Anne's. Tell, tell me about St. Anne's. What kind of, what kind of, uh, what, what was the setup there? It's split into um, two sites. The older ages are in Palmer's Green. I mean, I wasn't even going to go to university until my drama teacher sort of pulled me to a side and was like, okay, look, we're going to sit down and do this application together. My secondary school, it was a, it was a fun one. It was an all-girls school. It was Catholic, so there was a lot of girls there who basically came from some kind of, like, Christianity, religious background, <laughs> you know, um, not necessarily Catholicism. And it was also just, like, super mixed, super multicultural Lots of Nigerians, lots of Ghanaians, lots of Irish girls because of the Catholicism, Greek Cypriots. It was just, it was very North London, you know, very North Mm. London. Would you say that you had, I guess, a unique experience um, in that sense, like scholastically and just sort of socially with with that kind of mix? Because, you know, as we know, London is a diverse area. It is a melting pot, but obviously there are more heavily populated areas with different kinds of people than than others. So how how was that experience for you, just sort of being socialised amongst all those different types of people? Like, how do you think it affected your your worldview? Well, I obviously took it for granted back then. Mm. Um, But now that I've had the, like, incredible luck... Uh, to have traveled around the world with with the book like I realized just how unique um, growing up in that particular environment is you know my primary school was super mixed as well you know the first primary school I went to wasn't like I was the only one of the few black children but when I moved to North London it was extremely mixed extremely multicultural to the fact that it was just simply a given. Like, I remember in primary school, there'd be kids who'd turn up and they'd be met refugees, wouldn't speak a word of English, and then within a year, like, fluent. Like, it's actually incredible to see that process happening. But, you know, as an adult, I can recognise that. And as an adult who's gone to all sorts of different areas of the world, like, it strikes me just how incredibly homogenous other areas of the world are. When I went to, you know, the States for a work thing, I was shocked at how racially stratified it was, you know, big areas of the States where like, I wouldn't see another black person um, unless I went to the laundrette. And then suddenly I see all the black and Hispanic people washing their clothes and I'd be like, oh, you know, and that just wasn't my experience in London. I feel very lucky to come from an environment that's so distinctly multicultural and so at ease with that, you know, Um, Mm. and it, it just really strikes me um, when I'm away from home. And I also, I think like the, the book has that flavour, you know, the book has a, like a particular like London-y vibe and flavour to it, I think. Um, like the older I get, the more like broadened my horizons become, the more I recognise it for the distinct sort of like, I'm not going to say melting pot, I'll say salad bowl. Because I, I, think- I, I regret saying that. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you're gonna say salad bowl you're gonna say salad bowl because what? yeah with many different vegetables um i i recognize it for you know the special thing that it is i think there's very few places in the world that are like this maybe new york maybe berlin i don't know but mm. yeah 
it's definitely special and I guess and you know and so important for you you know to to have had that kind of school experience especially at, at that age I could just imagine like, as, as a right I, I would imagine you would be a completely different person without going to a school where you did yeah I think so you know to me going to like green lanes and buying hummus and then like going to like your white friend's house and having you know turkey twizzlers and chips like it was all part <laughs> of like, the same like london experience you know and then mm. on the weekend going to some kind of like nigerian hall party you know it's all part and parcel so it's really distinct and really special where did you go to uni again a place called preston okay so you went to preston uni you spend mm-hmm. three or four years there you come back to London. How do you feel about it when you come back? You're like, okay, right, I'm ready. I'm ready to take everything on. Or was it more of a case of like, oh, fuck, okay. Like, I was definitely sure. ready to take things on. But I just feel like the world was perhaps not ready for me. It was a difficult time. I had graduated and in university, I felt like a bit like a big fish in a little pond. You know what I mean? Like opportunity was abundant and I took every opportunity I could. In, in university, I was a lot more studious than I was in school there was that freedom and flexibility to actually follow what you were interested in rather than Mm. what was prescribed. However, you know, I really struggled to get jobs. You know, I applied and applied and had no luck. Um, And I was just basically in poverty. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like my family didn't have a huge amount of money. I really had to make it on my own. I've moved back home. That felt kind of a bit suffocating after four years away. I really didn't have any money and I was just struggling I had a like failed like attempt at trying to pursue a master's at UCL. And I just remember like I literally had so little money that I started cycling to get into Euston from Tottenham because I literally could not afford public transport. Eight years later, I'm still cycling. I can afford public transport now, but you know. Glad, I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> it was tough. It was really tough. And even though I felt like broadly, like geographically home, I couldn't afford to spend time with my friends in the way that I had done in the past, you know, because I didn't, you know, I was still struggling for money and trying to find jobs and stuff. So it didn't feel like socialising was a wise thing to spend money on. Yeah, it was a really difficult time, like that transition back into London. Rennie, I have to ask, are you or were you ever much of a raver? (laughs) Oh, (laughs) no, I wasn't a raver. I think, like, I did spend a lot of my uh, coming of age, like out out nights away from London but then when I would come home in the holidays like I would meet up with friends and we would go to like Dalston and stuff like that you know you know those clubs that are like in the basement of a shop (laughs) (laughs) I know them very well I'm still obsessed with the idea of you being you being out and about Oh, right. Um, hmm. Well, after I was like legally able to drink, well, there before I was legally able to drink, there was a pub in Wood Green that you could get into with a fake ID. <laughs> so a lot of me and my friends, and I'm talking like ordered on the internet, 20 quid, University of Fake Chester. Um, <laughs> a lot of us would um, would go there and drink, like probably the age of 17 and up. And at this pub, also a lot of people from the our like local boys school would go there as well so it's where we'd all go to you know create drama and gossip to discuss on Monday basically. Um, <laughs> I love the ownership of that <laughs> I love that you know, I really love the ownership of that because we often don't talk about that do we like when you're when you're a teenager you you literally spend what the whole week creating drama mm-hmm. for it to be played out 
like Friday through to Saturday, maybe Sundays, just discuss it on Monday, start all over again. Pretty much, pretty much. That was like a pub environment though, right? That wasn't really raving. Although we then got quite into going out in Soho and um, I would say that like Wood Green and Wood Green High Street was our like main meeting point, you know, because it'd be the people coming from Enfield, people coming from Edmonton, people coming from Tottenham, like the uh, public transport facilities, <laughs> they'd all find a way to Wood Green. So we'd all meet in Wood Green, we'd get the 29 bus into Soho and we used to go to this club. I think it's on Greek Street and I don't even think it exists anymore. It was called Moonlighting. Moonlighting. Yeah. Does it exist? <laughs> is this the night that it was called Cheapskates and you could get a drink for like 99p? There was Cheapskates, but also there was Candy Box, which was like the indie night. Right. And okay. That vodka, I don't think it was fit for human consumption. I'm sorry to insult. Like, does it exist? I don't think a lot, I don't think a lot of club nights exist anymore. Okay. I was on Greek Street recently and I was like, I knew I was coming on this podcast. So I started looking for it. Because it wasn't it near the Weatherspoons. <laughs> I think I think now moonlighting. I believe it's a Zabranos establishment right. or one of those. So you guys candy box and it was an indie night. It was an indie night, and lots of art school people went there. We also would go to Cheapskates, which was more like, oh god, I can't even remember the music. Mainstream pop, hip hop. I, I can't even remember now. But like Thursday candy box was very. It was like a religious thing for us. Right. Then we'd get the night bus, the N29. During the day, the 29 would like end its route in Wood Green, but in the night, it would go all the way up to Enfield, which was very good for my friends who lived in that area. But for me, I could just get the N29 to Turnpike Lane, and then it's quite mad to think about it now, but walk home. <laughs> <laughs> right? You know, I was just thinking this the other day. I mean, I, and I will always say the night bus is a rite of passage for everybody. Whether mm-hmm. you have no choice but to take it or not, uh, whether you just want to take it once to experience, like I feel like everyone, everyone who goes out in London, you just need to take the night bus because y- you never know what can happen. And mm-hmm. sometimes you can have more fun on the night bus than you can in the club, you know? Honestly, there was some wild and wacky behaviour. I'm too old now for night buses. I will get an Uber, but back then, I saw some wild and wacky behaviour. I saw a man watching pornography on his phone, you know? <laughs> and we all challenged him. We all called him out. We saw some crazy behaviours, fights, and the journey is so long as well, so long. So I wasn't a raver, Clara, but between the ages of like, I don't know, 17 and 19, I was an emo. I got myself some Converse, I got myself some skinny jeans, I was like, I'm a black emo now. Badly relaxed hair? Yeah, well, my my hair was always relaxed, but I started to sweep it into a fringe. (laughs) I think I went, I, I stopped listening to like hip hop, but I started listening to like My Chemical Romance. And I made one of the best friends I have, I've ever had in my life, who was also a black emo, um, who uh, I'm still really good friends with. When I heard that My Chemical Romance might be like... <laughs> I'm in that. Touring, I think it was at the beginning of this year, I heard it, I messaged her saying, should we go? And she was like, no, Renny, we shouldn't go. Like, <laughs> no, reclaim, regress. I'm, I'm very like, much... No. <laughs> oh, look, look, I love a nostalgia gig. I went to the Spice Girls, went to go see the Spice Girls in uh, Wembley, Wembley Stadium last year. And it was honestly one of the best experiences of my life. It was just pure joy. Why right. not, man? Yeah, so she, I was like, but you're the one who got me into them. <laughs> During those years, I went to see a lot of live music. Talk now, to I me. I can't say that I was like, that I'm um, proud of the live music I did see. <laughs> but I went to go and see a lot of it. Basically, every emo band under the sun, I'd be there. I would be there. 
And um, there was that venue, the Astoria in Charing Cross, which has now been knocked down. Mm. That, um, that like held a lot of those gigs. I think I saw Taking Back Sunday there, a lot of that. Um, also uh, Coco in Camden. Incre- I mean, yeah, because like, I think they recently had, a, I think they had a fire a few months really? ago. Really? There was, there was, there was some, there was some sort of issue. Um, yeah, that, that it's, it's definitely has to have reconstruction. I mean, I've, I've seen Prince at Coco before, and that was honestly one of the best gigs of my life. See, so, yeah, where, where, who did you go and see in Coco? I know, I think I saw My Chemical Romance there in some kind of like, um, like it was a secret gig. And the thing is about those uh, My Chemical Romance fans is that they turn off at 6am. I say they, we, I. <laughs> Stand in your truth, Rennie. Turned up so early to go and see a, a gig that was doors opened at 7pm. But, you know, it was all about the camaraderie and the people that you meet at that time. I can't say I'm in touch with any of the people that I met outside, sitting outside gig venues, but um, I'm not in touch with any of them at 31. <laughs> <laughs> I think a few of them have like followed my success and they're like go you but yeah it was a it was a fun time it was an interesting time it was nice to absorb myself into something um completely different you know there weren't many black emo kids but obviously those of us who were there we gravitated towards one another I can definitely definitely relate because like, I used to be really into No Doubt. I still am into No Doubt. And I went to go and see them at the Brixton Academy and I remember like seeing like all the other black girls in the event and being like Mm-hmm. Like, we exist. <laughs> and just Absolutely. be like, okay, this is fun. This is cool. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I mean, sometimes I, I miss my, like, live music days. Like, there was a time when, like, if there was a band I liked, I would know when they were touring. I would just know. And then I realised, like, in my mid-twenties, I was up on politics, but live music, I had no idea. I was like, I need to rebalance. And the other question I was going to ask you was, yeah, about jobs. So when you graduated, you came back to London. I mean, obviously, ideally, you would have wanted to get, like, a graduate job, but were you trying to get a job in a cafe, or were you trying to get a job in a bookshop? Like, what jobs did you work? Okay, so when I was in university, I'd started to freelance write. I'd started, I was blogging, I was doing a bit of freelance writing, and my aim when I moved back to London was... um, do a bit of a, like, do a master's at UCL, make money by freelance writing and like working in a cafe or something like that. But unfortunately, I just could not get the job. I couldn't even get a little bit of part-time work. And in the end, I did a, I found myself like doing a campaigns assistant job. It was basically a graduate job, but the aim was to do it alongside like studying, but it was so full on, I couldn't. So I dropped out. I dropped out of the studying basically. Mm. I want to talk to you about your book, not in intricate detail. As look, off, off mic, I'll say, text, I'll say this on the podcast. I don't want to talk to Rennie about the intricacies of her book because Rennie, my dear listeners, has been doing that nonstop for the past, <laughs> for the past, uh-huh. like, what, three, three years, is it now? Yeah, three years. You know, with the events of this year, obviously went back to uh, number one in the bestsellers list, which uh, you've been very public about your feelings uh, about that. So I want to... Again, not discuss the intricacies of the book, but, you know, a little bit about, I guess, um, your reaction to seeing it around town. For you as the person that wrote it, how do you react and how has it made you sort of feel, I guess, you know, seeing people out and about with your book on public transport? And do you talk to them? Do they clock you? Um, I've only ever seen a person reading it on the tube once. And it was at my local tube station. And um, it was this guy, like a white guy, sat on the bench reading... I instantly knew this man's not a Londoner because <laughs> he sat on the tube bench in the station reading. 
<laughs> but anyway, he alighted the train. He I, alighted? No. Boarded. That's the oh, word. Oh, yeah, that's it. Alightings get off, yeah. isn't it? Boardings get Yeah, 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 yeah. He got on the train. And I also got on the tube because, like, I had places to be. And so I just went up to him because he was reading it. Um, and he was so sweet, so kind, so friendly. He told me that he was an Australian man. He told me that um, it was his, like, housemate's copy. And uh, he'd only just started reading it. He'd only just started reading it. And I chatted, on a, chatted with him all the way to my stop, actually. He was absolutely shocked. And I was like, it is me. And then, like, I was like, just look at the back of the book because like, there's a picture of me there. What a the flex. Only- what a flex. Yeah, it's me. Just want to turn the book over. See? See this face? So I signed it for him. Um, and uh, we went our separate ways. I can't remember like the entirety of our conversation, but I do remember like seeing him and then like debating in my head whether or not I should go up and say hello. And I decided, you know, it's so rare. Like I hear a lot from like friends and family that they've seen people reading it, but I personally never have. And like, so having seen somebody, I was like, I better take this opportunity. Mm. No, I guess it must have been quite edifying, but I can understand that sort of battle of like, okay, does this make me like a massive twat or does this make me somebody's just connecting to, to my reader? I think that like, I have a readership who, you know, they feel very deeply involved with like the material of the book. So it's on me to, if I see someone, just say hello, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, my readers say hello to me all the time. Um, so it almost felt a bit like how the tables have turned. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I do want to go back on, because I do want to know about your writing ritual in the city. Um, mm-hmm. Because don't get wrong, for me, this podcast is about London, but it's also, it's, it's also not. It's about people's lives. London's just, the, you know, it's the catalyst, it's the umbrella to talk about whatever. But I do want to know about your writing ritual. So again, I'm not trying to talk to you about the intricacies of the book because you've been speaking about that for the past three years. And I know that respectfully, you're, you're over it. And that's absolutely fine. But I did want to know about the ritual of writing the book. What was your sort of daily thing? Like what, what libraries were you going to? What, like how were you, you know, finding space like in and around the city to kind of get your work done? Well, at the time I wrote at my kitchen table, pretty much. Though I mean, there's nothing glamorous about that. <laughs> um, I didn't go anywhere particular. Because you, know, you, you mentioned, you mentioned um, the British Library and, and the Black Archive. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you've ever been to like the British Library's reading rooms, um, but it's a whole like charade, basically. If you want to access a a book or a piece of information in the British Library, you have to order it online first, and then you have to book it to read in a particular reading room. You can't take your normal bag in there. I think they're worried about people stealing like the archived stuff. When you leave, you have to open your laptop, show that you don't have anything hidden in there. Like you have to put all of your... Um, bits and pieces valuables in a clear plastic bag when you go in and it's like a hundred percent silent in the British Library's reading rooms a hundred percent silent so you just go there get your book you can take pictures of the pages but only um only like a few um to avoid like infringing on copyright um you can take notes and stuff like that so and you're not to speak to anybody in the <laughs> Library's re- reading rooms so, like it's can you smile at anyone at least? God damn. I think you can smile. You can probably make eyes at people. I don't know. But um, I mean, it's quite good if you want to get absorbed in like the source material, which I definitely did. And I like, it was, you know, absolutely fascinating. But because you can't take the books out, like if you're reading a particular book, you have to go back daily. <laughs> so thank goodness I was in London because, um, you know, I'm, I was actually commuting into central London daily to finish reading a book. <laughs> um <laughs> 
that's such a surreal concept at this point in time having to venture outside of your home like just to read a book which which is weird because you know like growing up you know the library was everything Mm-hmm. You know, as, as, as a little kid but you forget you know in adulthood it's just well like we don't we don't really have to anymore we're, we're lazy you know you can you can get a book on your phone can't you absolutely well what i really love about buildings like the british library is that i think that we can take like what we believe is infinite information on on the internet for granted but actually the internet's only been with us for like 30 years and a lot of the information that i wanted for the book required basically stuff that had been like physically archived and you could only access in person you know sometimes people have messaged me asking you know can I see the original source and I'm like British Library is my friend like I can't it's not going to be online you know um to me it was very humbling I don't know as a millennial to really reckon with the fact while I was writing the book that like not all information is online if you want it information go and find it you know and on that topic the black cultural archives like they have a much smaller library, obviously. Um, where, is that, where is that based again? It's in Brixton, uh, Windrush Square. And uh, my experience of like researching there was a lot less formal, a lot more relaxed, and you could speak to people. I remember when I was like doing my research there for the book and stuff. I must have been probably 26 at the time. So this young guy turns to me and he said, oh, what, what uni do you go to? <laughs> hey, you still <laughs> got it, <laughs> I said, oh, I'm not, not in uni. I'm like, I'm researching a book. That gives you an idea of who's in there and like what they're doing. They're researching for their dissertations mostly. You know, I, I enjoyed it and I like going to Brixton. If I was going to settle anywhere else in London, I'd probably settle there, I think. Well, it's just, it, Brixton's just got a really homely feeling, like, you know, especially like the market indoors, like, you know, all the food, all the food stalls, like, so my mum goes and does her, uh, her, her money transfers, like to my, to my aunties and to my grandma. Yeah. <laughs> the Black Cultural Archives, it's such an important, like, you know, archiving is so important. There's also like the George Padmore Institute in Finsbury Park, um, which, you know, again, does like that archival work, like, no matter how much like those local areas and those landscapes change, I just think London's got such an interesting radical history of like black activism and people just going out of the way to just hang on to the information about stuff that was happening and just storing it like it's really invaluable I couldn't have done the work that I did with the book without those institutions so yeah well following on from that I want to talk to you about a couple things before I let you go a big London moment um that I witnessed for you was you on stage um talking to Chimamanda Adizu and Goethe like that was incredible it was such a um I don't know man it was it was a special night at the risk of sounding trite it it, it was like the South Bank on stage with, with somebody like that um were you nervous because you didn't seem like you were at all and if so um, please give me some tips because even as I talk to you, Rennie, we're friends, but I'm still nervous talking to you. <laughs> You're a smart person. I don't want to ask you thick questions. I think your questions are very good. Okay, uh, good. Thank you. That was the insecure part of me, like desperate for your validation. So thank you very much. Continue. I, when I'm feeling nervous, I, I over-prepare. When I'm feeling overwhelmed, I over-prepare. So, you know, I'd read Americana and in prep for that um, interview with her, I read like all her short stories, basically, and her other novel, Half of the Yellow Sun. I think I'd already read Half of the Yellow Sun at that point. But I'd read um, Purple Hibiscus. Mm. I wanted to be prepared. And I drafted out questions on the stories. I know that 
people came to the event because they wanted to see, you know, two like high profile black women vibing with each other. But for me, I was like, you know, she's one of my favorite authors. So I was like, I really want to ask her about like the themes and issues um, at the risk of sounding like a AQA, A level, you know, exam question. Like, <laughs> so I over-prepared and that stopped me feeling nervous. I was very anxious, but you know, what's so funny is that I turned up like an hour and a half before the uh, talk was happening and she turned up like 10 minutes before we were about to go on stage. <laughs> like flanked with her entourage and she was so chill and so calm and to me like at, because I was still adjusting to being recognized for my writing at that time and I was like all anxious about it um seeing a writer like at that point she was like 10 years deep into her career mm. um and just so at ease and so comfortable and very warm um I remember you know my my partner introduced himself to her and she like shook his hand and she's like you're a very lucky man <laughs> right on <laughs> um and uh it was just really like i was like this could be future me you know <laughs> like she like i was like i want to be that chill and cool and at ease with my success like 10 years deep into my career you're definitely leaning into your i guess your public confidence more from what i see you know oh, i mean like no, you are. Look, I'm glad you're leaning in more to your success. I know you've just bought your first home, which is fantastic. I have to ask, how is the most important figure in your home? How is the rabbit? Oh, she's, she's loving it. She's so at ease with her life. I take inspiration from my pet rabbit. I really do. And I'm not joking. Like, she just helps me follow my instincts and stuff. And I mean, on the topic of buying my first home, like, there was a time you know, fairly recently, where I didn't think it was a possibility to be able to have the life I wanted to and continue to live in London, you know. For me, I I don't see, I don't think I could settle anywhere else in the country. Although there were times when, like, I was really considering it because, you know, life as a freelance writer, like, prior to the success of the book, it was tough. <laughs> like, it was tough. Um, and so I often, like, reconsidered, you know, can I afford to live here? Because I was really doing it by the skin of my teeth. So to be able to have like created a situation in which like I'm settled here now, you know, and I have my home and, you know, I've got my mortgage, like, it's just, it's very like, I cannot take it for granted, you know, to know that I'm here in this little corner of East London for the foreseeable. Um, because I really do, for me, I, I, I couldn't, I can't imagine like settling elsewhere when I was speaking about my school experience and that kind of like distinct London environment, I just don't know if there's many other places in this world where you can experience this, you know? I just don't think there are. Mm. Uh, Rennie, if you were mayor for the day, if you were just mayor in general, what, what would you do to change the city, if you could? Okay. This is going to sound very selfish, given what I've just said. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... I am a cyclist. So am I. Um, and so I'd probably ban cars for a couple of days a week. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> it's not very popular. Just a couple of days a week. Not on days where, you know, kids need to get to school. And yes, okay, emergency vehicles and people with like accessibility needs. I'm not getting at them. But I just feel that in London, we can be a little too reliant. And I've been cut up and like a couple of months before the book came out, like I got knocked off my bike and I had, I had concussion. <laughs> Sorry, that was a very dramatic like auntie, like, oh my God, oh Jesus. But, 
Oh, damn, I, didn't, I actually don't think I, I don't think I know this. No, I didn't know that. Yeah, it was bad. Like, just two months before the book came out, I was like, wow, it was bad. Like, I had to go to hospital and everything. Um, and I just feel that if we could reduce... <laughs> reduce our reliance on cars it would be better for the environment um and you know imagine if we went out and children were frolicking (laughs) people were cycling everybody was happy it would be great so a couple of days a week just no cars and on that note renietta lodge (laughs) i hope this conversation gave you what it gave me i learned a lot more about you today i really did Oh, I'm glad to hear it. Glad to and hear it. And I hope it. I didn't ask you asinine questions. I don't think I did, but you never know. No, I don't think so either. I'd be mortified for wasting your time. Okay. Oh, don't worry about it. You're really clever, aren't you, hun? You're a clever hun. Can I call you a hun? Yeah, sure. Why not? Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you so very much for joining me for another episode of This City. I've been your host, Clara Anfo. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, please let us know. Tell a friend to tell a friend. Please rate, review, and don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast so you can catch the next episode as soon as it lands. And also, do let me know who you would like to hear next. I'm all ears. Thank you so much again for listening. This has been a Sony Music fourth floor creative production.